How many of you have seen uh, the movie The Greatest Showman? Yeah. Okay, so it won't be... Hudson, he said, yeah, okay, well, uh, news to me. Um, so, well, spoiler alert here, um, but it's been several years, so, I mean, yeah. Uh, it, well, in that movie, P.T. Barnum, which, you know, had the famous circus, um, he forms this circus of people who, uh, to use the words in the movie, are kind of like these freak performers. There's the bearded lady, there's uh, the extremely short Tom Thumb, there's the flying trapeze couple, and it's kind of this, you know, a performance of people that uh, people come to see the spectacle of it. And some make fun of this venture because it's not very high class. It's like, well, oh, this isn't like, you know, plays or operas. It's like, well, oh, you just kind of have this like freak show going on. And but Barnum loves his group, and he wants to bring joy to people. He kind of talks about people as like, are you really having fun in life? You know, be, being all serious. Like, I'm bringing joy to people, and like, I'm enjoying this. But then he meets an opera singer, and he's, he's kind of infatuated with her talent, and he decides to go on tour with her and leave his circus group to, you guys can run yourselves, you can run the show by yourselves, I'm going to go on tour with her and take her around America, and I'm going to give people like, I feel like I'm kind of taking it with this group, I'm going to give people a real show, he kind of gets off focus here. And they feel abandoned as he tours America with this famous singer, and Barnum finds, oh, I'm now appreciated by this high class, like... The critics in the newspapers were all ripping on me before, uh, and but now the high-class people, they like me. Uh, the critics are giving me good reviews, and I'm just watching this lady who's singing on stage, and all the whole crowd is just enraptured by her. And so he's like, uh, this is feeling good. But then the opera singer expresses her romantic feelings for him, and he's like, well, no, wait. Like, he rejects her. I've got this family, and he... Uh, but then she wants to... I move forward, she's mad about that, and then she gives him the, this kiss on stage at their next performance, and then all the cameras like catch it, and it gets printed in the newspapers, uh, but then he rushes home to find that his wife has left, and the building that he's doing is circus in, this is before they have it in like a tent, uh, it, the circus, bu the building has been burned down by protesters who have fought like with his circus performers, and then he's sitting in this bar, and his circus troupe finds him, and they stick with him even though uh, he abandoned them. And they're like, no, where are your family in this? And then he realizes that he's let them down. He's made this huge mistake. He's made this huge mess of things. And he's just sitting there in his own mess. And he begins this song called From Now On. And some of the words say this. He says, I saw the sun begin to dim. Like it's, and I felt the winter wind blow cold. And he's kind of like losing everything he's got. And he says, a man learns who is there for him. When the glitter fades and the walls won't hold, like things are just collapsing in around him and all that, you know, shininess is gone. He's, cause he says, because from then, from that rubble, one remains. It can only be what's true. You know, there's this rubble of this mess he's made of his life. And what remains is what's true. He says, if all was lost, is more I gained because it led me back to you. Like I've lost all this stuff, but I've gained something. It's led me back to this people that uh, were with me at the beginning, and he says, from now on, these eyes will not be blinded by the lights. From now on, what's waited till tomorrow starts tonight. He says, let this promise in me start, like an anthem in my heart, from now on. And so he realizes, okay, I was chasing, he's like, I've chased the, the cheers of crowds, I've chased the praise of politicians, and I've sought the admiration of kings and queens and the lights on the stage, 
And he's like, I've lost all that. And when all the glitter fades, when all that admiration fades, and when I've, you know, the walls come crumbling down, like, what's left? And he's like, that's what kind of truly matters. What remains is what matters. And now I've lost all that, but what have I gained? I've come back to these people that he realized are who matters most. And last year, Brian Herman, when he was talking to us about the, uh, what the Israelites were feeling, he said, these were people in distress. And he talked to us about what are situations when we feel in distress. And P.T. Barnum in this situation, he's feeling in distress. And he's looking around, he's like, look at this mess I've made, this mess of my own making. And the Israelites, in this, what we're seeing is they're in this mess of their own making. And what does P.T. Barnum realize? He realizes, okay, something's got to change. This has led me back to what's true and what really matters. And he decides to make a change. From now on, I'm not going to chase that. I'm going to go and go after what really matters. And so what do we do when we're standing in a mess of our own making? Where can we look for our own hope? If we've like been chasing something and all of a sudden we realize that just turned out to be nothing. And I'm just sitting in this pile of a mess and what do I do about this? How do we feel in that? And where do we look to for hope? What are we supposed to do when whatever we've been going after is now just this pile of rubble or just a big mess or like if you've ever been fishing, sometimes your fishing line just gets in this big snarl. It's like, or if you ever uh, have seen a, a girl after they, like, their comb eventually gets, I don't know if this happens, maybe this happens for guys, but the comb like gets built up with this hair and if you take that hair out, it's like this big gnarled nest. Kind of the same thing of what it looks like when you are fishing, like you get the line can kind of get in this big snarl. And it's like, how could I ever undo this? And if you're just sitting in that, and it's like, what am I going to do now? What do we look to for hope when we're in distress or we're sitting in a mess of our own making or a mess that others have brought upon us? Because some of these people in Israel, they didn't bring this mess upon them, their leaders brought it upon them. And so, what do we do in that? We're in our sixth week of this series called Micah who is a God like you, we're going through this Old Testament book by Micah, who is a prophet, a spokesperson for God. And there's four main themes in the prophets. And first, they confront and accuse. And we've seen how Micah has confronted God's people with sin and transgression. They turned away from God, and they turned against their fellow Israelites. The rich and powerful are taking land from other people, and the leadership of the nation have created... Uh, an unjust system against the poor, suppressing the poor. And so first, prophets confront and accuse, and second, prophets call people to repent. And Micah hasn't done that explicitly, but at the end of the book, he says, there's no one like God when it comes to forgiveness when we turn back to him. And so it's expected that, I'm telling you what's going wrong, but you can always turn back to God, and he's going to forgive you with compassion and mercy. And we know that King Hezekiah responds to Micah's sermon in, in chapter 3 with repentance. We see it in Jeremiah 26. And so prophets confront and accuse. They call for repentance. Third, they pronounce consequences of judgment for non-repentance. God made it clear when he began a relationship with Israel that if they turn from him to worship other gods and if they mistreat each other, there are consequences. They would be taken out of the land as a result. Other nations would come and take them out of the land, and they would forfeit that privilege, and they would be taken off into exile. And so Micah warns them, destruction is coming to Jerusalem. People, the Assyrians, are going to come and take you out of here if you keep going this direction. And so they confront and accuse, they call people to repent. 
They pronounce consequences of judgment for non-repentance. And fourth, they speak of hope of restoration. Because on the other side of judgment for their sin, God shines the light of hope for those who trust in Him. Because God says one day, you know, all this stuff is coming because of your sin. But one day God's going to undo that destruction that your sin has brought. That people will truly give, God says, the people who are left are going to truly give their hearts to me. They're going to truly follow me. They're going to stop worshiping other gods. They're going to stop mistreating people. They are going to go be my people. And I'm going to be their God. And all's going to be right in the land. God's kingdom is going to come to earth. And usually this hope, they say, is going to be fulfilled by God's Messiah. God's king that he's going to be put on the throne. And so this brings us to our passage for today. Micah is Micah 5 is one of the two most famous passages in Micah. You hear it around Christmas time every year because it has to do with the birth of the Messiah, God's king. And it's what's called a messianic prophecy. And sometimes when we think of prophecy in the Old Testament, we think, oh, the only thing that matters in the Old Testament is they're all predicting the future coming of Jesus. But as we're seeing in Micah, they're, they're often taught, the prophets are often just talking to the present day situation of the people and what they're doing and how they need to change what's going on. But in this case, Micah is speaking to the hope of restoration on the other side of what's going wrong in the country. And he's saying the hope, future hope is in the Messiah the, uh, that God is going to bring. And Messiah means anointed one. And this is God's anointed one. And kings were anointed to do God's will on earth. And in the New Testament, Christ is the equivalent of that. Christ means anointed one in Greek. And so Christmas, Christmas, is about the coming of Christ, the birth of the Messiah, God's anointed one. And so this prophecy about the birth of the Messiah in Micah 5 comes as God's people are standing in a mess of their own making. And so where can they look for hope? And that's what this prophecy is about. So we're going to take it in three parts. And God takes them in these three parts. God's ruler in verses 1 through 6. God's remnant in verses 7 through 9. And God's reform in verses 10 through 15. So it's God's ruler, God's remnant, God's reform. So God's ruler in verses 1 through 6. And in verse 1 of chapter 5, we get a sense of what the present distress is. Micah says in verse 1, now muster your troops, O daughter of troops. Siege is laid against us. With a rod they strike the judge of Israel on the cheek. And this is probably again referring to 701 B.C. when the Assyrian Empire surrounded Jerusalem under King Sennacherib. And in 722, Assyria came and conquered the northern kingdom of Israel, Samaria, or what was called Israel, and then their capital, Samaria. And we saw in chapter 1 how Micah said they're going to be taken out because they turn away from God. And southern kingdom of Judah, you're next if you don't change. And then Assyria does come in, um, but in 701 uh, they surround Jerusalem and they lay siege against it. They're trying to batter down the walls or like starve them out. Um, and ultimately they do fail because God intervenes. And you can read about that in the book of 2 Kings chapters 18 and 19 the book of Isaiah as well. And so this is probably saying, you don't know, must your troops or daughter troops, siege is laid against us. And so imagine this is a Jerusalem, and this are the walls. And imagine you're sitting in here, and all you do when you look out, you just see armies surrounding you. You are now hedged in and surrounded by whatever you have, by this army coming against you. 
And we see, we saw in chapter 4, God kept calling them daughter of Zion. So, verse 4, or chapter 4, verse 8. O you tower of the flock, hill of the daughter of Zion. Chapter 4, verse 10. Rise and groan, O daughter of Zion. Chapter 4, verse 13. Arise and thresh, O daughter of Zion. But now he calls them, Now muster your troops, O daughter of troops. He's changing the name. There's been this focus on Zion, which is another name for Jerusalem. But now he's changing the name, O daughter of troops. He's like, you need to muster yourselves for war if you want to get out of this. If you're, it's time for you to go to war if you want to think about how to get out of this. And if you want, if you're going to, it's time for you to think of a solution. And then there's this humiliating thing that happens. With a rod, they strike the judge of Israel on the cheek, which is referring to the king. It's like, okay, you know, think about somebody slapping you in the face. And how humiliating that would feel. It's like, okay, your king is going to go out. He's just going to, it's like a slap in the face. Like, okay, like, time for you guys to get, you're surrounded. And like, muster your troops, so daughter of troops. Like, bring them on out and you're going to, your king's going to get slapped in the face. And so this is the distress they're in. And there's been this focus on Jerusalem and Zion throughout the book. Chapter 1, idolatry has spread to Zion. Chapter 3, the leadership in Jerusalem is addressed. The, they build Zion with blood and Jerusalem with iniquity. And he says, Therefore Zion will be plowed as a field, and Jerusalem shall become a heap of ruins, and the mountain of the house of wooded heights. And then the capital city of Judah, it's supposed to be, uh, Jerusalem is supposed to be the center that leads and guides the nation where the leadership is, the king is, and the judges, and all this stuff is happening, the priests and the prophets. It's supposed to be the center but it's become corrupt. And so God says, I'm going to destroy it because you've turned from my ways. And then chapter 4, it says, Zion's going to become again, heard Bob talk about, it's going to become this place of God's glory. God's going to gather those who are hurt from Mount Zion. He's going to reign there as king. And then the end of chapter 4 showed how Zion is in distress because of the Assyrian Empire. Now, here in chapter verse 1, the focus continues to be on Jerusalem. But then in verse 2, it shifts. God has future plans for his people. Zion will be renewed and restored. God will be present with his people. God will rule over his people. But Zion's hope does not come from within Zion. Jerusalem's hope does not come from within Jerusalem. They need to look elsewhere. And so these people have built up, remember back in the previous chapters, they built up this system where Okay, we got the rich and powerful taking their land from people. And now, okay, the poor could go to the judges in the court system and say, hey, these people are taking our land in unjust ways. But what's happening in the court system? Uh, the judges are being bribed by the rich and powerful. So, okay, the poor could go to the judges, but the, judge, the rich and powerful who are taking the land are just bribing the judges. And so they're getting away with it. And then what's happening? The prophets who are supposed to be speaking against all this corruption... They are, if whoever has money, they speak a good word to people who have money. They speak a bad word to people who don't have money. The priests are supposed to be teaching people God's law so people can be obeying God's law and doing what's right. But they only teach people who have money. And so there's all this corrupt system. So they've, and we saw that they build uh, Jerusalem with iniquity and they build Zion with, with blood. And so they built this whole system. But now God is bringing the seed against them. All this thing they built is just sitting in this mess. So they're standing in this own mess, this mess of their own making, and they're looking out. So this is their mess they're sitting in. And they're looking out and saying, what are we going to do? What are we going to do? And they might be talking amongst themselves. 
They feel trapped and caged in. And what? how are we going to fix this? Like, what, How do we take care of this? And when we're in a mess, we can put all the focus on it. We need to, we need to figure this out. You know, if you're in a relationship mess, or if you're in a mess at work, or if you're in a mess with your kids, or your financial mess, and you're just like, I just need to figure this out. You're just sitting there, like, we need to figure out how all these pieces get back together. I need to build the tower back up. Like, I have this relationship, and I need to figure out how, how do we get it get this all entangled to build it back up. Or I have this financial issue, and I need to build it back up. And we're, we're just focused on that thing, we're focused on what the other person needs to do, or what our kids need to do, or what I need to do, and we're just focused on building it back up. We put all the focus on the mess, and all we see is the mess, and the only resources we see for getting out of that mess are our own resources, or whatever resources are within the, me- the system of the mess. And so we just keep trying harder, or we despair. And God here is getting them to look outside of their mess and their distress. And this is where, this is where they've gotten themselves. They've been doing things their way. Are they ready to try something else? And so God addresses a different city in verse 2. Zion and Jerusalem have been the focus. And he says, O daughter of troops, in verse 1. But look what, he address, what city addresses in verse 2. But you, O Bethlehem, Ephrathah, who are too little to be among the clans of Judah, from you shall come forth for me, one who is to be ruler in Israel, whose coming forth is from of old, from ancient days. And so for that, think about this. If you're like, I'm sitting in Jerusalem, and we've got a siege out there, and it's like, God, we, who cares about Bethlehem? Talk to me about Jerusalem. This is where the problem is. And they're like, talk to me about this. And he's like, but oh, Bethlehem. I don't want to care about Bethlehem. No, oh, Bethlehem. Fine. We, you want us to take our eyes off of Jerusalem and the mess we got here? Let's look over to Bethlehem. Maybe you guys didn't even see that over there. You probably did. You guys are smart. And it's green, so. But it's like, oh, Bethlehem. Now, Bethlehem was a dinky town. Small, insignificant. It was only um, six miles south of Jerusalem. This was a dinky town. And these verses are God talking, God's uh, quoted God out of God's mouth. Small, insignificant. But this was David's town. King David, the best king they had ever had up to this point, came from Bethlehem. And God says, what's going to happen out of Bethlehem? From you shall come forth for me. For me. It's not going to be a king for Jerusalem. From Bethlehem is going to come forth a king for Israel. No, a king for me, God says. And this reminds us of how David was described. He was a man after God's own heart. God wants a king that is pursuing after him. And he says, where is this king going to come from whose coming forth is from of old, from ancient days? It's like all whatever has been happening in Jerusalem, whatever leadership they have, we, we need, just need something new. God's like going to reach back into the line of David. I'm going I'm to get some fresh stuff out of there, and I'm going to get something that's not corrupted by everything that's going on here. We're going to go back into the line of David and get something out of here. This is, verse 2 describes the origins of what God wants them to look for. And then the first part of verse 3 describes the timing. It says this, Therefore, he shall give them up until the time when she who is in labor has given birth. And so, this comes back to Micah talking. Verse 2, was that was God. It says he's addressing Bethlehem, 
saying what he's going to do, where's this king going to come from, where's their hope going to come from, not from within Jerusalem. I want you to look to Bethlehem, look to a different city. Not everything, you guys have messed that city up. I'm bringing hope from a different place. Look over here. But when's the timing? When's this going to happen? He says, Jerusalem will fall. He says, therefore, he's going to give them up until the time when she who is in labor has given birth. So these people are going to fall and they're going to go into exile. And then the ruler is going to be born. And that is what happens, not in 701 B.C., but eventually, later in 586 B.C., not to the Assyrians, but to the Babylonians, these people go into exile. And Israel, even into Jesus' time, they're under Roman occupation. They're still in not having their own land because they're not following after God. And what are the results? It says at the end of verse 3, Then the rest of his brothers shall return to the people of Israel. So this is going to be an Israelite who's going to bring the people back. He's going to gather the people of God. And he's going to be God's ruler. And what's, what is his rule and reign going to be like? Verse 4 says, And he shall stand and shepherd his flock in the strength of the Lord, and the majesty of the name of the Lord his God. And they shall dwell secure, for now he shall be great to the ends of the earth. And so there's three verbs you can look at here. First he says, and he shall stand. And stand could just, it's this indication of like, this is going to last. He's going to stand. It's like he's established. He's going to remain. This is going to be a remaining kingdom. And secondly, he's going to shepherd his flock in the strength of the Lord and the majesty of the Lord his God. This has been a theme throughout Micah. We saw it back at the end of chapter 2, that there is going to be, God wants to gather his people like a shepherd gathers his sheep. He's going to be a good shepherd from, if you remember Jesus fulfilling that in John chapter 10. He's going to be like a shepherd. And God often talked about the rulers of Israel, kings of Israel, like sheep, or like shepherds who are tending his sheep. And he's going to do it in the strength of the Lord, in the majesty of the name of the Lord his God. So he's going to do it in God's power, with God's spirit upon him. And then he says in verse 3, or uh, yeah, um, not in verse 3, but um, later uh, at the end of verse 4, and they, speaking of the people that he's going to rule over, shall dwell secure. For now he shall be great to the ends of the earth. So you have these people standing in their own mess. And now they're hearing, okay, from Bethlehem. No, we, we need help here. We need help here. We need somebody to rise up from here. I want you to look over to Bethlehem. You're in this situation where you're feeling very insecure. You have this army coming against you. You need salvation. You need a victory over your enemies that are surrounding you now. You need somebody to clean up this mess. And saying, well, look over here. Who's going to have you dwell secure? This ruler is going to come from over here. You're feeling very insecure now. You're very vulnerable. You have this enemy coming against you. I'm going to bring somebody from here who's going to have you dwell secure. And it's not going to be just this little Jerusalem security that you're thinking now. It's going to be, uh, why can you dwell secure? Because uh, he shall be great to the ends of the earth. This is going to be a worldwide thing that he has. And it reminds me of Matthew 28. All authority in heaven and earth has been given to him. Then in verse five, or verse five, he starts talking about how Jesus will have victory over his enemies and our enemies. It says, "And he shall be their peace." 
when the Assyrian comes into our land and treads in our palaces, then we will raise against him seven shepherds and eight princes of men. They shall shepherd the land of Assyria with the sword and the land of Nimrod at its entrances. And he shall deliver us from the Assyrian when he comes into our land and treads within our border. So the key phrase here is, and he shall be their peace. Ephesians chapter 2 says, Jesus is our peace. And the passage in Isaiah talks about Jesus' birth, says he's our prince of peace. So this Messiah that's going to come is going to be our peace. He brings victory. And Assyrian here you know, speaks very specifically of, okay, well, I don't have any Assyrians coming against me. That was an enemy just for this time. But it's speaking of the Assyrian is like symbolic of any enemy that could come against God's people. And they just used the enemy at that time. And it says, any enemy, verse 6, he shall deliver us from any enemy. And he does it through, well, any, he raised up seven shepherds and eight princes. He can do it through people that he raises up amongst God's people. And so this is speaking to us of this God saying, I'm going to bring this ruler up from a place that you didn't expect. And so they had this whole system they set up, this whole kingdom for themselves in which these wealthy people and powerful people and the judges were getting money, the prophets were getting money, the priests were getting money from these wealthy people, this whole system where they built this kingdom for themselves. And now they're looking out and they're feeling very vulnerable and insecure because it might all go away. And they thought it never would. They thought, felt they were powerful, like nothing could stop them. They had the money, the law, the government, the religion. And they thought they had God on their side. They said, no disaster will come upon us. God is so patient, he's infinitely patient, we can just keep going on like this, and God won't do anything. But now they've come to the end of it. What are they going to do? Are they finally ready to listen to God? And he says, I want you to look somewhere else. Don't look at this whole thing you've built up for the answer. I want you to look somewhere else for the answer to what, how you can get out of this. And for us, we can, when we're in a mess of our own making, we can keep going down that path. Or we can take God's path. You know, think about, I don't know, if you have a mess where you're like, it might not even be a mess of your own making. It might, it might be a mess that's just like, think about anything you're frustrated about or anxious about or worried about or something you're just having tension about with somebody else. Like, There's like just some sort of knot you're working through and it's just like, I don't know how to get out of this or I'm trying to work on this or get out of it. It doesn't even have to be a mess of your own making. It might be becoming a mess because of how you're trying to solve it. And it's like, we just keep looking at that thing. It's like, if I can only do this, or if they would only do that, and only on this, this, and that. And we just need to be like, I need to take a deep breath. I need to stop looking at this mess. I need to look elsewhere. I need to look to God's ways and God's king. We can either keep relying on what we've been relying on and keep going down that path, and it's going to get worse and worse. Or we can go God's way and look to God's and we'll get more into that later. So verses 7 through 9 now tell us God's remnant, which remnant is like a, a word for what's remaining because there's going to be people who go into judgment who don't accept God's ways. And then the remnant is, God says, even though some people don't follow him, God always has people who are remaining faithful to him. And so this is what God, his hope that he gives to them. When God's ruler comes, God's people won't all be in one place. They'll be scattered throughout the world among the nations. And the phrase, in the midst of many peoples, happen, is repeated twice in verse 7 
in verse 8. This is a change from what the people of Israel expected because they would be like, no, we're going to be in this land forever. People of Israel are going to be in this land. God promised us we're going to be in here forever. And, but this describes perfectly being in the midst of many peoples. It describes perfectly what happened after Jesus' resurrection when he told his followers and us, the church, to go into all the world and make disciples of all nations. So now we are scattered in the midst of many peoples. And there's two different roles or effects of God's people that are described under the rule of the Messiah in these verses. And they can be understood by remembering the initial promise God gave to Abraham, which was, I'm going to bless you and make you a great nation so you can be a blessing to all the people of the earth. And then he says, those who bless you I will bless, and those who curse you I will curse. And so that's getting fulfilled in these verses. And so there's two different images that get used. The first one is about blessing. And these help us to know what God is trying to do through us um, because we know this ver- these verses about God's ruler coming, it, these people had to wait for it and they didn't see it happen. But we have seen this prophecy fulfilled that Jesus, Matthew 2, that we read at the beginning of the service, has been, tells us this was fulfilled in Jesus. The ruler in Bethlehem has been born. And so now we can say, oh, this is awesome. Like We don't have to wait for him to come anymore. This is being fulfilled in our day, and they were waiting for it still. And so now we know these other parts that are being fulfilled now. So this is describing us and what God's doing um, by us. And so verse 7 says, Then the remnant of Jacob shall be in the midst of many peoples, like dew from the Lord, like showers on the grass, which delay not for a man, nor wait for the children of man. So if you think of dew or showers on the grass in that day in Israel, there was not much rain. And so some times of the year, all the water that was coming was like the dew that would form in the morning on the grass and the people, shepherds would bring their sheep and they would lick that off and it's all and the grass would also just get that. And that was like all that was they were getting for um, water unless you went and found a water source. And uh, he says that they don't delay, they delay not for man and they don't wait for the children of man. Meaning, they're not we can't call down rain. It's just like, no, God's in control of this. They come and they go uh, based on God's direction. And so the showers of the grass and, the, and dew are from the Lord. And they're sent by God and not by human will. And so the second part, it says, in verse 8, the remnant of Jacob shall be among the nations in the midst of many peoples, like a lion among the beasts of the forest, like a young lion among the flocks of the sheep, which when it goes through, treads down, and tears in pieces, and there's none to deliver. And so this is describing a lion is like uh, kind of terrifying to other animals. It's like that could eat me. It's like top of the food chain, right? And so there's these two things described here: is that God's people, us as Jesus' disciples, scattered among the peoples of the earth in the midst of the peoples. On the one end, we are like dew on the grass, and like rain sent from the Lord. Like we're supposed to be this blessing to people. On the other end, we are like a lion among the animals. Not that we're supposed to be like eating people up, but it's like those who bless God's people are blessed. Those who curse God's people are cursed. And so there's verses in the New Testament that speak to this, such as 2 Corinthians chapter 2, verses 14 through 16. Paul says, Thanks be to God, who in Christ always leads us in triumphal procession. So there's the victory over enemies. And through us spreads the fragrance of the knowledge of him everywhere. 
And so here's the two sides of it. For we are the aroma of Christ to God among those who are being saved, so that's the blessing, and among those who are perishing, to one a fragrance from death to death, and to the other a fragrance from life to life. And so those who are being saved, it's a fragrance from life to life. People being saved, like that aroma of Christ, that knowledge of Him, that just, I just want that. But then people, other people that were spreading the aroma of Christ to, they're like, yuck, I want nothing to do with that. That's like, then they curse it, and it just verifies their, their, eternal, their eternal state. And so it's like, those who bless God's people are blessed, those who curse God's people are cursed. It comes back to salt of the earth, light of the world. Now Jesus says, I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. This is what the final verse is talking about. There, verse, um, uh, verse 9. Your hand shall be lifted up over your adversaries and all your enemies shall be cut off. And Jesus says that he's the light of the world, come into the world, but people have loved the darkness. And so they've stayed out of the light. And he says people will hate. Will hate us for being Jesus' followers. And if we're making that light shine and we're spreading the aroma of Christ, there's some people who are going to be like, I want that. And some people are going to be like, I want nothing to do with you. And this is what these verses are talking about. And in some ways, these verses are have been fulfilled. They are being ful- fulfilled in an ongoing way, and they will be fulfilled. And so it's not like we're supposed to go out there and be like, I'm just going to you know, beat down my enemies or whatever. But it's like we see in Revelation 19 how Jesus does come to defeat all of his enemies. And so it's something that we know by our very presence, if we are making Christ known, accomplishes God's purposes. And so we go out. It's not our job to control how people respond to us. But we can see ourselves as like, okay, I'm supposed to be here. I've heard some people say, like, we just live out loud. Like, don't hide that I'm a follower of Christ. It's our job to be who we are and to put God on display in our words and our deeds and then see who God is drawing to himself and who is repelled. It's kind of like a magnet. It's like, we just be who we are, put God on display in our words and deeds, and some people are going to be drawn to that, that aroma of Christ. You know, it's kind of like when you go in the mall and you're like, Where, what is that smell? And then you find out, wasn't it like the almonds or something? Or what, what isn't that what it is? Like the almonds in the mall? I can't remember what it is. That weird thing they roast and it's like, smells so good. I could be totally wrong on that. Maybe roasted almonds aren't good. But it's like, we're supposed to be that smell of like wherever we're at and some people are just like I love that and they come to it and some people are just like I, I cannot stand that and we just be who we are and we let God do his work but that's going to draw some people and it's going to repel some people and we can get so worried about how people are going to respond we're supposed to let God take care of it and so that's our purpose of what we're doing in the world lastly verses 10 through 15 is God's reform how he's going to reform his people and he's going to remove things that are God's substitutes in our life. Is that these people in Jerusalem and in Israel's day, that day, had all these substitutes for God. And that's how they got off track. Because they were chasing, worshipping other gods, and then also worshipping, which led them to be selfish and chasing after money and more power and control and all these things. But then these verses describe how God is going to come in and he's going to be like, you know, this people that are following 
my Messiah, this is going to be different. I'm going to make a change here. And so he's going to remove God's substitutes, and we call that in the New Testament sanctification of how we're in this process of getting more holy uh, and more righteous, more like Jesus. So he says in verse 10, In that day, declares the Lord, I will cut off your horses from among you, will destroy your chariots, and will cut off the cities of your land, and will throw down all your strongholds. And so often in the Bible, the prophets, and even in the, um, in the law, God said, don't build this huge military. Don't create all these fortified cities, because then you're just becoming like all the other nations, and you're relying on those things as your security. And he says, I'm the one who fights for you. Rely on me. And so you think to yourself, what makes you feel secure? Like you don't need God. And so in some ways, they're supposed to live vulnerably. Instead of building up this huge army, and building up all these fortified cities, and it's like, okay, now that's going to protect us. It's like, they're supposed to actually live vulnerably and not have these fortified cities and not have this huge army. They're supposed to have, be vulnerable to the world and be like, we are trusting God to protect us. And we can use things as God's substitutes. And it's like we can like bubble wrap ourselves so that nothing can like harm us in life. Of like, I have, you know, we, and we, there's things that we can say like, okay, is that wise to do this? Or am I using it as a God's substitute of, to protect me from ever needing God or ever needing anybody else? And I just am self-sufficient. We need to, God says, I want to remove those things from your life. He's saying that to them. And then, he says he's also going to remove religious God substitutes. So he says in verse 12, I will cut off sorceries from your hand, and you shall have no more tellers of fortunes. And I'll cut off your carved images and your pillars from among you, and you will bow down no more to the work of your hands. And I'll root out your Asherah images from among you and destroy your cities. And sorceries and fortune tellers, those are ways of getting from God what they want. It's like ways of manipulating God. Like, do this formula, and you can know the future, fortune tellers. Or do this formula, and you can have, you know, the sorcery, like this kind of magic to, like, do this certain thing or a certain power. It's like, uh, do these formulas, you can have certain things from God. And carved images and pillars and referring to the work of your hands. These are like man-made gods, like little statues or things that they could worship of like, okay, we set this up, and we just do X, Y, and Z, and then we make it happy, and then it gives us stuff. Or in Ash- Asher images, there's this, there's this god, you maybe heard me talk about the god of, uh, named Baal. Asher was kind of like his partner, and they would have these little, they would have these uh, poles, that was supposed to be this tree, and they'd worship her by this pole. She was also like a fertility goddess that would like help with well, giving us help with having kids or help with having our land go well, grow crops, and having uh, rain come. And so they would worship her. And he's like, "No, I'm going to take all these things out of here that put make this formula so you can control things and these god substitutes where you think like, oh, there's just a look. You just put me in a box and you just do X, Y, and Z." And that's what it takes. And so, what is, how does he describe how he's going to remove these substitutes? And how will we remove them from our lives? It's basically by whatever means necessary. Look at the words he uses. Every single time he says, I will cut off. 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 He's going to cut it off from them. 
And you think about kind of like cutting off from an attic. Like this, think about this city. They had this whole system, this whole interwoven system. It's like an intervention. Like you just need to be cut off from all these God substitutes you have in your life. And it's like, are you willing to do that? And if it's like, mm, no. You know, could think about them saying like, well, God, I like what you're saying, but we'd really like to keep some of the sorcery. Uh, and could we keep at least one Asherah pole? It's like, no. If you want to be clean of this addiction to these God substitutes, you need to cut it all off. Like, if you want this, like, you need to get, if you want to, you want to get out of this mess, you need to get out of the God substitutes. And, like, in our life, we can sometimes just, like, toy with God substitutes for so long. It's like, eh, I know this is hurting, I'm going to this instead of God, or I know I'm doing this, or I'm going, I'm doing this instead. And we, like, kind of just keep doing it and doing it and doing it. And we let the busyness of life, and then we just keep sitting, sitting in this mess and feeling the effects of it. And it's like, do I really want to be clean of that and get cut off from it like an addict? And we can replace it with something better than what we're experiencing. And so you're trying to relate to God through religious formulas. I do this, and then you give me this, God. Do you want the real thing, a real relationship? Or are you chasing after something with greater effort than you're chasing after God? And so we see in this passage that they're losing. They're just losing. Like, they're losing at life, basically. Like, we're sitting in this mess of our own making. The prophet's been telling us we're surrounded. We're about to lose everything. We built this whole system where we felt secure. Wealthy people, like, we're just cheating at life and cheating God and we're messing with the system and we're ripping people off and it feels great. We built this city and we love our houses and all the stuff we built. But now they're surrounded, and now, you know, it's, it's time to figure out, oh, okay, do I want to keep going with this? And, they, and God says, I can bring you victory, but it's not going to come from that. Stop looking there. I want you to look at a completely different way. Get your eyes off of that. And are you willing to start doing things a different way? And so what does God do to give us hope in our mess? The baby born in Bethlehem is not only the king to lead us to victory, but he's God himself. And God doesn't just send a solution to our mess. He comes in person to our mess and into our mess. God enters into our mess. He doesn't stand in the distance and say like, uh, Hey, you want some help? You know, Just call the hotline and you know, I'll give you some advice. But God actually enters into the mess of humanity the mess of human history and human experience, and he isn't unaffected by it. And Jesus took on our mess, and he lived within the mess of humanity. He took on all its consequences, and the one born in Bethlehem comes to the mess in Jerusalem, literally. He comes to the mess in Jerusalem, and he confronts all the corruption that's happening there, and then he dies because of it. And he takes it on himself on the cross, and God not only says, like, I'll fix your mess, but I'm going to come and take it on, and I'm going to show you how terrible it is that you're willing to kill God, me, get, get me out of the picture so you can keep on with your mess. That he, that's how he takes it on so he can give forgiveness. Jesus comes and takes on what we deserve, the destruction, the death, the exile. And so now in him we can be free of that mess, both the all three, the, the penalty of it, of like, this is what you deserve, destruction, exile, death. Jesus lives, takes on the consequence of it, the destruction, the death for it. 
And then the power of it, he says, look, if you want to turn, come my way, he says, I'm going to take the God stuff that's out of your life, and I'm going to free you from the power of them. I'm going to cut them off from your life. And then one day, you'll be free from the presence of them. Of that, there's a, like I said, this, this passage it has been fulfilled. It's being fulfilled in that we're being renewed and we're being taken as God substitutes out of our life and that the enemies uh, of that stand against God and His people are being defeated. But one day, they'll be fully defeated. That one day they'll be defeated. There'll be no God substitutes that exist. We won't even have that inclination that all God's enemies will be, be defeated. There'll be no more mess. So what mess do you have in your life? Are you standing in a mess of your own making? Are you in a mess that someone else has made, like many of the Israelites were? They were faithful, but they're like, we've been, we've been listening to the prophets, but we're standing in this mess because of our leadership. And you guys have brought this on us. So are you standing in a mess somebody else has made and you're trying to deal with it? Are you trying to help someone else that's in a mess and you're just overwhelmed of like, how do I get you out of here? We can be so focused on it and not focus on what God says we need to do. And we can feel hopeless in that. We feel hopeless as long as we're only looking at the mess. We keep trying to figure out how to put it back together. I just need to help put my life back together. I need to, we need to put this back together. I need to help you put your life back together. It's like, we need to take a deep breath, get our eyes off of the mess in Jerusalem and Zion and our life or whatever, and look to what God says. And so, this is what I was seeing Micah do, is just look to God's king when you're in your mess or when you're in distress when you need hope look to God's king get your eyes out of there if you if you want something else than what you're getting right now if you're in a mess or somebody else is in a mess or your this relationship's not going if you want something else than what is currently happening you need to look somewhere else if you want something else you need to look somewhere else and that's Micah saying and he says look you know, God's will means you need to get off the throne. You stop doing what you're doing here. Get off the throne. I'm going to bring a king. And it's surprising how he does it. It's God's will is doing things God's way and God's timing. And he's like, you need to get off the throne. I'm going to bring a king, a new king, not the king and stuff you like you've been doing it. He's going to come from Bethlehem. I know you don't think much of Bethlehem. It's going to be small and insignificant, unexpected, and that's humbling. You've been doing it your way long enough. Now, are you, are, you, are you done with that now? And we, if we want to keep doing it our way, it's like, when will we ever hit the bottom of doing that? It's like, let's stop doing it our way and do it God's way. And it's God's timing. We might have to wait. And while God's ruler has been born, and some of these promises have been filled, some are still in process. They're being fulfilled, and some won't be fulfilled until the future. And so in your distress and whatever might be happening in your life, what a mess. We need to look to Jesus because the what's happening won't be fulfilled. Won't, we can't get out of it by looking in at ourselves or just looking at it. We need to take a breath and look out and look at God. Because if we want God's kingdom, His will to be done on earth as, as it is in heaven, we need to get our eyes out of whatever we're in. And if we want change... We need to change who's on the throne because they've got themselves on the throne. And they're like, look, I'm going to bring someone else to the throne. And so if you think about the situation you're in, it's like, okay, who's on the throne in this situation? Am I trying 
to get my thing done, and that's what's going on here. And Brian jokes that I no longer have to bring a rope because we already have ropes here for the illustration I often use. But many situations that we find tension in, we're either pulling on a rope, a tug of war with God, or in a tug of war with another person. And the way we get out of these messes is like we need to let go of the rope. And we need to say, like, okay, Jesus is on the throne. What does he want to do in this? And those first parts are like, what's his purpose? He wants me to represent him. And he's going to take care of the rest. And I need to not look to God's substitutes and, like, just let his will be done. So we need to look away from whatever it is we're focused on. And let's pray. Father, thank you for this hope that you're sending your son. And you have sent it him and fulfilled it, the promise. Would you let us be looking to you when we're in a mess and when we're in distress. In your son's name we pray. Amen.